My name is Rick, and I'm one of the ministers here. Welcome to First City Church. It's good to see you, Wayne. Good to see you. How you feeling? Yeah, so good to see Wayne. He's, he and his wife are back. He's really struggling, and we know uh, that it's been a difficult journey, you know, for you just because of the uniqueness to this illness. Um, but man, you look strong. You look good. You're all wrapped up. If if you're if you're like now, if you ever see Wayne, and if he walks into a cold room, his blood will clot up. It's just a, a, a rare blood disorder that he carries. And so he stays warm. His wife keeps him warm. And God has been really good to you, hasn't he? And so, man, I loved it. I love watching when we were singing, God, you're so good. You're good, right? We were praising, right? I saw you. And so I'm really glad to see you. And so if you're visiting with us, man, it's good to have you here today. All the people who normally sit right here in the middle of this section came to first service because they forgot to set their clock back, you know, for uh, the day. And so we had a whole bunch of people show up for the first service and it was good to see all them. It was like, well, if I'm already up, I might as well go ahead and go to first service. But I'm glad that you're here. Open up your Bibles to the book of Jonah chapter 4. We have been doing this slow roll through this book of Jonah. And, and it was like when we first opened up the book, it's like, hey, it's just a children's story. I remember this book. Jonah, Jonah, go down to Nineveh. Ooh. And Jonah says, no, I won't go. And he gets on a boat and a big storm and a big fish and a big throw up. And next thing you know, you know, Jonah obeys God. So I thought, okay, that's all we really know. But as we've just trekked through and just slowly gone through and looked at the story, we begin to realize this is a, not a story about Jonah. It's, it's the only book of all of the prophets, major minor prophets, it's the only book where it's not God giving a message to a prophet, giving the message to all of his people. This is a story about Jonah. And it's really meant in just the way that it's written so that when we're reading through it, we recognize in the middle of it Oh, you're not really talking about Jonah. You're really talking about me. And so in the pew rack in front of you, we have several. Uh, we have a, a copy of the outline. And I just put just some of the lessons. I don't have them on our slides. Just that we've, that we've uh, seen going through this book. Number one, God invited Jonah to join him on a spiritual adventure. And Jonah went in the opposite direction. <laughs> and we're like, okay, well, sometimes we do the same thing. God invites us to go on a journey with him. And adventure to rescue those far from him. And truthfully, most of us would rather not. And we just began to evaluate. Am I so caught up in my world, navigating my day, going to job, coming home, just finances, navigating my life so that I look up and, and find out that I've really not partnered with God to do anything. Next week, we're going to start a series called, there's just a, a brief intro to our series starting next week, called The Insanity of Obedience. And the bottom line of this is, does God consider me to be obedient if I just live a nice life, but don't do anything to impact the kingdom of God? Well, why are you asking that question? Because 90% of all American Christians, born, lived, Christian, died a Christian, 90% never lead one person to God. And so we're going to read through Scripture and find out if God is okay with that or if he's calling us to more. Number two on the outline, it says, Jonah, 
misses on this great work of God all around him because Jonah is asleep at the wheel and he misses all because he's so self-absorbed. He's in his own world and God's doing this amazing stuff and he misses all of it. How much of a work of God are we missing out on because we are all caught up in our own little world? Number three, when Jonah was at the lowest point in his life, the belly of a big fish in the bottom of a sea, he found the amazing grace of God. We too can discover how rock bottom is a great foundation for a new life. Ah, boy, it was for me. Now, not everybody has to hit rock bottom, right? Some of you are way smarter than me, and you're like, I am not going there. I'm going to live a very different life because I don't want to go through all that pain. Man, God bless you. For others who are hard-headed like me, you know, rock bottom is what opened up my eyes. Losing everything that was important to me was instrumental in the transformation of a different life, different decisions. Jonah chapter 3 verse 6 is this verse where the king of Nineveh stood up, took off his royal robes, put on sackcloth, and sat down in dust. And we said that that is a great picture of what Jesus did for us. The judgment of God against sin is real, but the rescue of our lives through the cross of that Messiah should humble us all. Amen? So... Number five, did it humble Jonah? (laughs) And will it move us? Well, that's our message for today. Before I moved here, in fact, it was Suzanne and I moved here in May of 2007. So we've been here 11 years. But before we moved here, we were living in Atlanta, Georgia. And I was coming back and forth for several months, actually. And in one of those, it was around March or April. uh, I came, I was here on a Sunday and spoke. And I left to go back home. And... Uh, so I was in my car by myself, went up uh, 29 uh, all the way up to you know, almost close to Bruton area, right? And then got on that little, back then it was a two-lane road, 113. Do you know that road I'm talking about, that little 14-mile stretch of road between uh, right there until you get to Interstate 65? And it was only two lanes. Now it's four lanes, much, much better. Two lanes, speed limit. Do you remember what the speed limit was? 45, 45, that was, that was the most painful road to ride on because you're, I'm wanting to get home, you know, I'm tired and I got a long journey, 45 miles an hour on a two lane road. So anyway, I'm in my car and I'm riding and 45 miles an hour and behind me is a pickup truck and apparently he, he was in a hurry. He had places to go and people to see and things to do. And so I'm I'm going slowly and there's traffic coming again. So he couldn't go around and he got aggravated. The further we went, aggravate, more aggravate. He was right on my bumper and honking and, (laughs) and full of animation, letting me know I was not going fast enough, just on and on and on and on. And he would try to go around and here'd come another car. You know, and I'm like, I ain't doing it. I am not going faster. Because if you remember, there had these police that always sat on that road catching people just like him. And, and so I thought, I'm not doing it. Finally, there was a break in the traffic. He pulled around me. Actually, he backed up. You know how you back up and you get a run and start. And you're flying. And right as he got next to me, he slows down. And he gives me that. 
Hey, man, good to see you. Hope you have a good day. Salute. (laughs) (laughs) Went on. And was gone. I mean, he was gone. So I'm just, okay, whatever. He's my insurance that I can speed up to 50 and not get a... (laughs) So I did. And... uh, and I'm riding, and do you remember there used to be a, before they went four lane, there used to be an old church building as you're headed towards 65, a little old white church building over on the left. And, uh, and so I come over the, around the corner and over the hill, and there were these blue lights. And I thought, surely God's not that good. But sure enough, he was. And as I'm passing at 45 miles an hour, there's that pickup truck. And the guy's off. And I gave him my own, hey, man, I hope you have a really good day. As I went on my way. Hey, I got a question for you. What is it about us that celebrates when people get what they deserve? I mean, what is it about us that when people really get it, we're like, yeah, they deserved it. What is it about us that wants to give it to people? What, what is it that is inside us? The devil made me do it. <laughs> That's what chapter four is all about. We've been trekking with Jonah and God says, hey, Jonah. The wickedness of Nineveh has come up before me and they're awful and the people are awful and they're living in a horrible way and it's time that I do something about it. I want you to go and preach against them. And Jonah's like, no, I hate them. So he jumps in a boat and he heads in the opposite direction, going as far away from God as he thinks he can get. And God's God's not into that. God's like, no, Jonah... You're supposed to be my prophet. You're supposed to be helping me accomplish my will on earth. So a big storm and thrown over and a big fish and a rescue. And Jonah says, okay, God, I'll partner with you. So then Jonah goes to the city, chapter 3, and he starts preaching this five-word sermon. You can go online. You can get all the lessons if you want to listen to the rest of them. And really, he's way too happy to do this sermon. He's like, 40 days Nineveh's gone. And so he's like, 40 days, your history, 40 days. <laughs> right? I mean, he's just, that's all he says. He doesn't say repent. He doesn't say God. He doesn't say you better change. He doesn't say anything. He just says in 40 days, you're done. And all the people from the least to the greatest repented, changed, turned around. We're not right. We are wrong. Everyone, from the king all the way through, 120,000 people repented and changed. And the last verse, chapter 3, and God relented and did not bring about the calamity on the people that was planned. They're believers. One five-word sermon and 120,000 converts. 
Woo! That's a big church. Surely Jonah's happy about that. Chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. <laughs> for, for what? For what? God spared the life of 120 people. They repented. They turned to him. And Jonah's like, no. People like that deserve hell. How dare you, God? What? Can you be that mad? And then... Jonah begins to speak, and he offers up this. The Bible calls it a prayer. He offers up this prayer to God. Look at the next verse. And he prayed to the Lord. Let me go ahead and warn you, this isn't a prayer. This is a chewing out. Jonah just chewed out God. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Whew. Jonah. I mean, don't, is, don't, don't you want to say, man, you need to check your heart. What is up with all that anger? Have you, any of you ever prayed a prayer like that? Call it a prayer, but just chew God out? <laughs> no. And have you? I put now highlighted in, in uh, yellowish green. That's not necessarily in your Bible, but have you heard this before? A gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, and a God who relents from sending calamity. Have you ever heard that before in Scripture? Have you ever read that before? In the Old Testament, that description of God is no less than twelve times quoted, at least a dozen times in the Old Testament. That is what is quoted. When it comes to telling you what you can expect from a God who loves you even if you rebel against him. It's the description of God. And it started with Moses. God calls Moses, I need you to go down to Egypt. My people have been enslaved there for 400 years. And Moses goes and, and through a series of events, Pharaoh lets them go. They cross the Kadesh Barnea. They're headed toward the promised land. And God's like, okay, if we're going to do this, then we need to describe how we're going to relate to one another. You need to know what you can expect from me as your God. I want you to know what I expect from you as my people. And so he calls Moses up to this mountain. Moses goes up to the mountain, spends 40 days with God. While he's up there, the people think that he's been gone too long. And they decide to take matters into their own hands. This is the first time they've been free in 400 years. Generation after generation after generation of slaves. And now they're free. What are they going to do with their freedom? So they get a bunch of jewelry and they put it together and they make this little golden calf. And they set it up and they say, that's going to be our God. And that God allows us to do whatever we want. And they started committing unbelievable sexual immorality and calling it worship and doing all kinds of stuff. Just to botch. I mean, you talk about, you talk about Christians going wild. I mean, you just they, they went crazy. Meanwhile, back on top of the mountain, Moses said, I want to see you, God. I want to see you. I've heard your voice. I've seen your mighty works. But I want to see you. God says, well, no one can see my face and live. And he chiseled out on those two tablets his Ten Commandments. And as Moses is worshiping, 
God sees everything going on at the foot of the mountain. God, the Bible says in chapter 34 of the book of Exodus, verses 35 and 36, that he, in a cloud, came down, covered Moses' face, passed by him so that Moses could see his back. And God declared, this is who I am. I am a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That's what God said about himself. And now Jonah is throwing God's words back in his face. That's what he's doing. Oh, I know that's who you are. And I don't like anything about it. When you're gracious to me, it's okay. Because I'm good. But how dare you be so gracious to people like that? Well, Jonah. And so in verse 3, Jonah concludes, Oh, Lord, just take away my life. I don't even, I don't want to, it's better for me if I just die, if I don't even live. You feel that strongly about it, do you? That's who you are? The kind of person who would rather not forgive people? Harbor anger, rage, jealousy? You would rather not forgive? That's who you are? And so I just asked the question, and it's on your outline if you want to fill in the blanks. Why, is it, why are we so unwilling to forgive? What is it about us that just believes that people who get on our rear end deserve what they get? That people who act, and, we, and it's almost like we celebrate it. And then if God does something different and they're blessed, we say they don't deserve it. So I just want to speak about this just for a second. On October the 2nd, 2006, Charles Roberts walked into an Amish schoolhouse armed with three guns. This was up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And if you remember the story, he walked into that schoolhouse, took everybody hostage. Somebody found out. They called. The police were all there, everybody, but nobody went inside. He let everybody out of the room, the teachers, some other adults, some small children, all the guys. And he kept, I think it was, 11 girls between ages 6 through 13. Tied all their legs together. And then in the end, he shot them all. Ended up killing five of them and then himself. He wrote in a letter why he was doing what he was doing. That he was so mad at God because his newborn daughter had passed away. And so this Amish community had to decide, what are they going to do with this? And here's this guy who can't and won't forgive God, who harbors it for years. 
and then decides to release all of his anger in that way. Just unbelievable. But in an unexpected and unbelievable act of forgiveness, the Amish community came together, including the families of the victims, and attended his funeral just to support his widow and tell him he was forgiven. And they even offered and some financially supported her through the ordeal. And if you remember, sitting in coffee shops and in offices and all around in our nation, people were debating whether or not they could forgive like that, what they would do. And far too often, people said, I'll tell you what I'd have done, right? In the 1980s, there was this guy, Gary Ridgway, who was, came to be known as the Green River Killer. He, uh, all through the 80s and 90s, uh, a lot of ladies, a lot of girls came up missing. They found them in the river, which is why they got the name. And it wasn't until DNA testing in 2003 was able to confirm that he was the killer of, at that time, at least 48. If you read the bottom of the article, the very last sentence, he claimed to have taken the lives of at least 80 women. In 2003, they brought him to his sentencing He's in the courtroom, and they're allowing now the families of the victims to confront the killer. And one after one, they get to come up and just express, and they did, and, and, and shown live. And they're expressing their anger and their rage and all of the stuff that they have gone through and all of the pain and all of the difficulty and how he deserved to burn in hell. And he just sat there stone-faced. He sat there without any expression on his face at all until the father of an 18-year-old girl named Linda stood up. And this is what Robert Rule said. Mr. Ridgway, there are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. You've made it difficult to live up to what I believe and that is what God says to do, and that's to forgive. You are forgiven, sir. And these words brought Widgeway to tears, and that's the picture. And here again, people are debating what they would have done, what they would have said, how they felt. And what he deserved. In 1987 in Northern Ireland. Robert Wilson and his daughter Marie were caught up in a bombing. It was on Remembrance Sunday Memorial to honor British soldiers, war soldiers who had fallen. And those in Northern Ireland were so angry still at British occupation. And what they had done in, in uh, their nation. And, and so the provisional IRA, that Irish Republican Army, wanted to punish 
these British soldiers and families for all of the years, all the history of punishment and crime and killings that they had done. And so this IRA got together and they planted bombs in this small town in Northern Ireland where they believed that families of these British soldiers were going to be staying and standing so that during the parade they would set off all the bombs and, and, and kill all these British families as a show of retaliation. But caught up in that bombing was Robert uh, Wilson and his daughter. And they were buried under the rubble. And you can see the buildings over here. They were buried under the rubble in that building. And people were trying to get to them. And they were trapped. And he was lying next to his daughter. And he reached out and she grabbed his hand. And ever so often he would say, Are you okay? Are you with me? And she would say, I'm here, Daddy. And when they removed them, they removed both of them from the rubble. But just a few minutes later, she passed away. And the BBC went and did an interview with him while he was still in the hospital, just, a, just within hours of the bombing. And this is what William Ury has to say in his book, The Third Side. No one who heard Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he said in that interview. His grace towered over the miserable justification of the bombers. Speaking from his hospital bed, Wilson described his last conversation with his daughter. She held my hand tightly, gripped me as hard as she could, and she said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were her exact words to me, and those were the last words. I ever heard her say. And then they were astonished at what he said next because he continued. To the astonishment of listeners, Wilson went on to add, but I will bear no ill will. I will bear no grudge. Bitter talk is not going to bring her back to life. I will pray tonight and every night for the men who did this, that God will forgive them. No words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such a powerful emotional impact. You can still go online today and type in his name and it is recorded and you can hear him say these words. But the story didn't end there. Another book was written to describe what happened next, this time by Mary McAleese in her book, Love and Chaos. Gordon's words shamed us all and caught us off guard. They sounded so different from what we expected and what we had all become used to. They brought a stillness with them. They carried a sense of the transcendent into a place that I had become so ugly we could hardly bear to watch. But Gordon has his detractors and unbelievably... He even received bags of hate mail. How dare you forgive? People demanded. What kind of father are you who can forgive your daughter's killers? And she goes on. 
It was as if Gordon had spoken these words of forgiveness for the first time in human history. As if Christ had never uttered the words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. One outspoken critic who was a Christian said to me about Gordon Wilson, surely the poor man must have been in shock. As if offering love and forgiveness is a sign of mental weakness instead of spiritual strength. What is it about us that has a hard time forgiving? That wants Nineveh to receive what they deserve and does not want to partner with God for a different outcome. At this point in the story, God gives three attempts to change Jonah's heart, to bring him around to his grace. And so attempt number one was just to simply talk it out. God just wanted to engage in a conversation with Jonah and just have him just have this conversation so that they could get on the same page. So in verse 4, the Bible says, But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah, I mean, I understand that you're feeling these emotions, but is it right for you to feel that way? And so God initiates this conversation. How does Jonah reply? What does Jonah say in reply? Well, next verse. How did Jonah reply? He pouted. He walked off. He walked off. God's like, hey, can we sit down and have a conversation? Can you tell me why you're so angry? And he stormed to his room. Jonah go outside, sat in the place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Now, what was he expecting to happen to the city? He's like, I need some popcorn to go with his rock show. God's going to send this place up in flames. It's going to be awesome. God's like, I, I want to talk to you, Jonah. Hey, come here. Let's sit down and talk. Tell me why you're angry. Tell me what's going on. And he's just huffing and puffing and just storms off. He's pouting. He's acting like a kid. I am so grateful that none of us ever act that way. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm so grateful that when, when, you know, it's when we're mad and upset and somebody comes over and they say, hey, can we just sit down and talk about this? That you never act that way. And so what was it? That Jonah wanted to happen. Well, let's just remember. In chapter 3, his sermon was this. So in chapter 3, verse 4. 40 more days and Nineveh will be. And here's you a good Hebrew word. Hapak. Hapak. It's kind of fun to say. Say it with me. Hapak. Say it again. Hapak. Ah. In 40 days. I know, right? Nineveh's going to be hapak. Right now. In the Bible, just here's, your, here's your, just a quick Hebrew study. There are three different ways to interpret hapak. I've given you an example of all three. The first one is this turned over. And when you're reading in your Bible, you can open up. I don't know what translation you have, but more than likely your translation says turned over or overthrown or, or something like that. And so 
So the first one is turned over, and it's Hosea 7, 8. Israel's like a baked bread that has not been hot, not been turned over. And, and I love, in fact, you can go on Right Now Media, and you can watch some history and how they baked bread and all that kind of stuff. And so they, it was in the ground in sand and fire, and they put uh, leaves over it, and they would bake the bread, but at, halfway through it, they'd have to turn it over. Right? Otherwise, it would be burnt on one side and doughy on the other. And so then they'd knock all the sand off. It's amazing. I, I encourage you to go and just watch. I mean, it's so cool how they baked their bread and what they did with it. And so, and that's what he's saying. It, you know, it's, it's like baked bread. It hasn't been turned over. You're only halfway done. We're only halfway there. Come on, Israel, we can do this. But it's just turned over. Number two, hapak was this translation of overthrown, actually destroyed. This negative side of hapak. Lamentation four, the sin of my people's sin is greater than that of Sodom, which was hapak, destroyed in a moment without a hand to help. But a third translation of the word is this positive side, changed or transformed. Where Psalm 30, verse 11, God, you have hapak, you have changed, you have transformed my grief and mourning into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothes with joy. You've just clothed me with joy. Three different ways to express the same Hebrew word. Now, just answer for me. Which one do you believe Jonah was thinking? Hapak. Which translation? Number two. Ooh, it's going to be awesome. God's going to destroy that city. Which one did did God have in his mind? Oh, boy. Those are two very different outcomes with the same word, isn't it? Wow. God's trying to transform Jonah and bring him to where he is. And Jonah wants to have nothing to do with it. God, let's just talk it out. And Jonah's like, I'm not talking to you. So he goes and gets in his own place. So now, attempt number two, expose the emotions. So now God just wants to expose what's going on inside his heart. And look at how he does it. Verse 6, then the Lord God provided a leafy plant. I love this verse. It's the only time Jonah's happy in the whole book. The Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow over Jonah and gave shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That's so, that feels so cool breeze in my face. I'm in a lot of comfort now while I'm going to watch this city burn. (laughs) He's so happy. And then verse 7. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. I love reading it in the Hebrew because in the Hebrew, it's like, it's like tiny worm. It's like God provided this tiny little animal to come and eat at the roots and it chewed the plant so that it withered. All in the book, you know, God's inviting Jonah to the big mission. And Jonah runs in a big way in the opposite direction. And there's a big storm and a huge fish and a big throw up. And, and then a big repentance of all of Nineveh. And then God provides this plant to co- totally cover. And then there's this tiny little worm. It, it takes a monumental effort from God to move us to where he is. But oftentimes, it doesn't take but a tiny little thing. And you're throwing him under the bus. Why is God doing this to me? 
I can't believe. What did I ever do? What? And I could really preach here, but I think I'm going to move on. When God removes your comfort, and he did. And you can blame God if you want, because look at verse 8. When the sun rose, God provided. And it's not like this scorching east wind came up on its own. God did it. And he provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And here it is again. With it. <laughs> and he wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. It would be better for who? For me. It would be better for me. Oh, I didn't realize, Jonah, that this is all about you. I didn't know this was all about you. Is that what we're dealing with here? Is that the dissonance between where we are and where God is? Is he's wanting to do something big in our world and you're concerned about you? (laughs) Is that where we are? And look at verse 9. God's now trying to talk to him again. And this time Jonah answers him. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, (laughs) he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Wow. I mean, God is exposing his, his whole world is wrapped up around how he feels. He can't even partner with God in greater ways. Now listen, it's very easy for us to get so caught up in our own world that when the sun is shining and things are going our way and you get a raise and everybody's happy with you and they remembered your birthday and everything's and you're like, man, this is such a great day. God is so good. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. And the next day when the boss is displeased with your work and you didn't get the promotion, it went to your best friend who sits in the cube and doesn't work half as hard as you do. And, and all of a sudden it's like, I can't believe it. I mean, are we going to let the circumstances of the day dictate how we live, yes or no? Maybe it's rhetorical. That's Jonah. That's how he's living. And can't you see how embarrassing it would be to live that way? One minute you're happy. The next minute you're sad. How do I please you? Do what I want. That's how you can please me. Let me have my way. That's not a winning proposition for either of us. And God's just exposing it. All you really care about is you. And you're living for nothing. When I provided a great plant for you, you were so happy. When I saved you out of the belly of that big fish, you were so grateful. Every time I extend grace to you, you're like, thank you, Lord. But every time I want to extend grace to somebody else, you don't want anything to do with it. Are you sure you're a believer of mine, says the Lord? Attempt number three, clarify your priorities. It's almost like God just gave it to him. Okay, I understand your emotions, and let's just say you're, you're right. That things go well, and you're all happy. Things go bad, and you're all sad. You get the job, and things can't be better. Somebody does something that you don't like, and you're pouting, and you're acting like, blah. Let's just assume that you're okay, that, that, that you're right. In being that emotional and not living according to principles and priorities, you're living according to how your day goes. Even if you were right, what is it that you're trying to defend? And so God says in verse 10, 
But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. It gets all your emotions. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. All your emotions are wrapped around you. And God says, you want to know what my emotions are wrapped around? Verse 11. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? God's like, I'm not trying to defend me. I'm trying to save people. What are you trying to do, Jonah? All you care about is yourself? It's like, well, while you're, while you're just trying to make everybody make you happy, I'm trying to save the world. Did God not say, I am not willing that anyone should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance? Yes or no? What are we doing? Spending all of our time trying to make our lives comfortable. While people around us are going to hell. Are we okay with that? Oh God, it's okay for you to love your enemy. (laughs) Surely you're not calling me to do the same. And so he says in Luke chapter 6, and don't let the first six or seven words go past you. But to you who are willing to listen. Meaning, there's going to be a bunch of you right now who's just like, good night, hurry up and get this over, I'm ready to go to lunch. I got my life to get to. But there may be a few in here who are saying, he's right. My world is too caught up in myself and not enough in the things of God. So to you who are willing to listen, God says, you want to be pleasing to me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you and pray for those who hurt you. In the last two fill in the blanks on your page, I just ask you two questions. And maybe they are meant to be rhetorical. Maybe they're just meant to just think about it. It's like, God, where are you wanting to send me? Where is God wanting to send you? Is it across the street to that neighbor? Is it someone in your family that you haven't been getting along with? Is it to your children? Is it to your spouse? Is it to your best friend? Is it in your community? Is it at your place of business? God, where are you wanting to send me? I want my mission, my life to be caught up in your life. And then question number two. What have I, and maybe the better question is who, have I avoided that God wants to rescue there are certain people, I don't they've been so mean. I really don't want them to go to heaven. I don't want to have to forgive them. It feels too good to hate them. And it keeps me from having to do anything about it. Romans chapter 5, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. 
Hey, what did Jonah do? What did Jonah end up doing? We don't know. Because this is where the writer chose to just end the story. And then it hits me again. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's not about Jonah. The real question is, what am I going to do? What are you going to do? See, right now, your story is being written in heaven. You have Jonah's. But your story has been written. And one day, there will be a judgment. And we will all come and stand before the judgment seat of God. And everything will be revealed. Your story is going to be written. And it's going to be read. And God's going to show where he invited you to do something with him that he wanted done. And the question is, how will you, not how did Jonah's story end, but how will your story end? If you want to take a step into the work of God, I invite you at 1230, just in a few minutes, downstairs. I'll be there, and we're going to go through growth track. Step one is just where's God? What's he calling us to? And it's an invitation. Do I want to be a part of that or not? So if, you're, if, if you have, don't have a church home, if you've never really participated with God in something that he wants to do, I'm inviting you to take a step today. We'll feed you lunch. And if you have children, we'll provide the babysitting. We don't want any distractions. Today, God invites you to join him. You can do that right now because I want to offer up a prayer. And if you really want to take a step, we'll feed you lunch. And I'll be with you. I'll take the step with you. We'll do it together. I'm going to pray. While we pray, if you're serving communion, if you'll go to the back because we're going to be serving. And during this communion, we're just going to, it's really, really simple. When Jesus died, he left us this little memorial, this very simple little act of obedience where we eat this bread and drink this cup and really we're declaring what he did for us and that we're willing to join him in his mission to seek and save the lost. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Thank you for putting this story in the Bible. Thank you for calling us to more. Thank you for reminding us that your work is kingdom work. You want everyone saved. Even the people that we do not feel deserve it. And you're calling us to get out of our comfort zone. To get away from the leafy plant and our comfort that that puts shade over our head. And food in our belly. And you're calling us to join you into something greater. I pray, Lord God, that we say yes. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that you are a good and compassionate God. Slow to anger. 
slow to bring calamity on people who have done wrong. Oh, Lord, teach us how to forgive like you forgive. Give us that mission. Thank you for offering us such amazing grace. We celebrate you right now in the name of Jesus. Amen.